The last time I was here, we were in Ephesians, and we're going to just continue that as well. It's good to be here with you again. Greetings from Appleton. Everybody's still alive down there and kicking. We made it through the holidays. And uh, looking for a good 2011 in Appleton. I know you're looking for a good one here as well. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, shall we? Page 1032 in my Bible, in case you're looking for it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, For those of you who have been here before, while we were talking about, uh, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians And uh, talking about spiritual transformation, the the subject matter for this book, this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians is spiritual transformation. And until now, our discussion has been centering around the inside stuff that has to happen in us so that the outside stuff can take place. In other words, nobody can really live the Christian life unless there is some basic change that takes place in our heart. And that, has, uh, that is something that out, is outside of our ability to fix. God is the one who has to change our hearts. He has to do some transforming on the inside. And when that transforming comes about, all of a sudden we find that we are able to behave and live and do what a Christian does. Without that transformation, it's not going to happen. Matter of fact, we've seen that God, in changing the human heart, has to completely deconstruct the human heart and, and, and start over pretty much from scratch. Uh, we've seen that there really is nothing within us that is salvageable. When it comes to our transformation, there exist no traces or pieces or uh, unseen aspects in our human personality that God can build a new man off of. There's just nothing there that really in, in our sinful state that God can use. He just, it's just because of sin and death, it's useless. And so God has to come in and rebuild from scratch. So instead... Real spiritual salvation means that God has to enter into that that human being, the one that he's after, you and me, and he has to sweep aside all of the dry brush and all of the garbage and the dirty, tattered rags that that make up our lives. He's got to do away with the whole thing and then rebuild that human being from the inside with a new spirit and a new outlook and a new ability to love and serve and honor God with his life. Um, You've heard the term, born again. That's what it means. That's why Jesus Christ used that term. No man, no man is permitted into the kingdom of heaven until he has been born again or rebuilt from scratch. 
And so Paul, in chapter 1 to chapter 3 in Ephesians, uh, filled us in on the details of what happens in this person who's being rebuilt from scratch. I'm going to do a real quick recap of the first three chapters for some of you that may not have been here. First, he, first of all, God has chosen or uh, called us to undergo the transformation. That's the key. Uh, If God had not chosen to do this in us, it would not have happened. But he did. He chose you. He chose me. And he began that work by calling us to himself. We saw that this is a very deep mystery because God, or because Paul insists that such a, a calling begins in the heart of God. Not, it wasn't my idea. It was God's idea to call me before the creation of the world. Isn't that interesting? Ephesians 1.4, before the creation of the world, God had in mind calling you to himself. Next, this person experiences something called redemption and the forgiveness of sins mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7. And then salvation comes to that person who is being born again by God's grace. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And then those of us who were before dead in our transgressions are now made alive with Christ. And then God raises us up with Christ so that we are actually seated with him in the heavenly places and being included with the redeemed ones who are members of Christ's church begins by our believing in Jesus Christ. And that results in God actually depositing himself in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. So it begins with the call, and then it proceeds to redemption, and then, wow, God comes and lives in us himself. Isn't that cool? And then once we belong to Christ, the transformation keeps on. Uh, Once you come to an altar or once you say that prayer to receive Jesus in your heart, (laughs) he's not done. That's just the beginning, and the transformation continues. He gives us wisdom and revelation about who he is. And he begins opening up our spiritual eyes so that we can better understand the riches of his glorious inheritance and the incomparably great power for those of us who believe. And this person being born again suddenly finds himself a part of this wonderful family of faith where he is no longer a stranger or foreigner on the earth, but now belongs to and contributes to something that actually has eternal significance, the church. And finally, a person being born again begins to understand the mystery for the first time in his life behind why Jesus Christ came and the eternal purposes of God in his own life. Little by little, God begins to show you why he made you. Little by little, God begins to show you why you're here, what his purpose is in your life. And it's much bigger than you could ever hope or imagine. I'm I'm sure many of you have found that out. So with all of these things having happened in my life, and most of them still happening, I, the believer in Jesus Christ, am given certain responsibilities now that I have become this new human being. And as you look at these last three chapters of Ephesians, remember this. God does not expect from us what we cannot produce. That's a real key thing to remember as you study the last three chapters of Ephesians. God does not expect from us what we cannot produce. He is not unreasonable. He is not hard to please. He is not obstinate 
or dictatorial or mean-spirited in his dealings with us. Instead, God is patient in teaching us the way. He is firm when we stray from the way and firm when we stubbornly refuse him and then gentle when he restores us back when we fail and then always protective of you and me, always, because we are his. And so in these first three verses, uh, look at several words that are listed there uh, and you won't find these, these, these particular words in the first section of the first half of Ephesians, but we find them here. These words, urge, live, be, and make. I urge you to live, began Paul. It does not say I urge you to think, I urge you to listen, I urge you to learn, I urge you to believe or consider or remember or pray. Paul says I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Uh, Later on he says, I am the Lord's prisoner. Isn't that interesting? So I urge you to live this life that is worthy of the calling. Chapter 6, Paul said again, uh, he, he, he refers to himself there as an ambassador in chains. The prisoner of the Lord, an ambassador in chains. But he's not making excuses for not being able to do more for God. He's not apologizing for his imprisonment or expressing displeasure that his chains have lessened his testimony. Paul, For Paul, this was just part of the territory for him. Being in jail, being in trouble, was just it just came with what he did. It came with the calling of God on his life. You can be an ambassador of Christ wherever you are, he was saying. Even if you're in jail, you can be an ambassador of Christ. And whatever situation you're in, you can live for him. And that is what I'm urging you to do, Ephesians. Be an ambassador for him. I'm doing that in prison, of all places. If I can do that in prison, you can do that as free men. Uh, Pastor Mark's probably told you all the stories about when he was in jail. Uh, for Jesus. <laughs> and uh, uh, Pastor Mark and I often shared a jail cell in the early years. We were in Las Vegas, and uh, we were, uh, those about 70 of us were arrested for preaching on the streets in Vegas and thrown into jail for about a week because we didn't have bail money and the, the judge didn't know what to do with us, so he just left, left us sit there. And it was amazing, but you know, we found ourselves 70 long haired freaks in the jail preaching to the prisoners that were in there. <laughs> and some of the prisoners were, were coming down off of heroin and other things, and we were driving them crazy. you know. But then there were others, there were others who were in there who were hungry for God, and we were able to share the gospel with them. It was so cool uh, to be able to, to see these men. And we discovered personal experience, up close and personal, that Jesus Christ can work in a jail cell as well as out of, as well as out of a jail cell. Many of you have experienced that as well, I'm sure, where you felt totally limited in your Christian testimony and yet somehow God managed to move in spite of your limitations. And so Paul says, I urge you to live. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This word, worthy, has to do with reputation and character. 
His urging them to live worthy lives as pertaining to their calling means simply this. I want you to maintain an honorable reputation. I urge you to live this way, people. Transform people of God. I want you to have a good reputation. Your life is always preaching, isn't it? You've probably heard somebody say that before, some pastor, somebody. Your life is always preaching. Uh, you don't have to say words to preach. All you have to do is live. And that's why Paul wrote this. Live a life worthy of the calling. Uh, he didn't say preach about a life worthy of the calling. He said live it. You know and I know that anybody can talk about how to live this life. But that's not what people out there are looking for, are they? They don't care what you say. It's how you talk. They are always, always observing. Don't ever imagine that people are not looking at your life if they somehow discover that you're a Christian. If they discover that, you are on stage from then on as far as they are concerned. They are observing you. They're watching. And that is the reason Paul wanted Christians to live these lives worthily to honor God and so that was one thing I mean that we always want to live a worthy respectable life to honor God first of course but number two we also want to be able to give people something to look at don't we something good to look at at least we kid ourselves if we think that people are not observing our behavior this last half of Ephesians is all about really about behavior, if you wanted to sum it all up in one word. <clears throat> Two points are made in this book of Ephesians. The first half shows how we are transformed. The second half of Ephesians shows what a transformed person does. Here's a short poem. I, I found this the other day. By, uh, her name is Portia Nelson, and it's entitled Autobiography in Five Short Chapters, and it illustrates this transformation process in us from learning about things to doing things. So, chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it, and then I fall in again, and I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. <laughs> my eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Wow, she's getting it. And chapter 5, I walk down another street. <laughs> isn't that awesome? And that's how we learn, isn't it, as Christians? That's the transformation process. It's a teaching experience. It's a learning experience. And when you're first starting out, yeah, you do dumb stuff. But then after a while as a Christian, you find out, oh, I did that before. It didn't work. I better try this. That is a natural process. That's the process that Jesus hopes you're going to follow as you grow in your faith. The truly transformed person eventually comes to the place where he begins, by choice, 
to simply walk down a new street. He's making new choices. He's making good decisions. He's breaking old patterns of destructive behavior. And he begins doing more than just altering his old life. He actually begins creating a new constructive pattern and conforming to the new life that has been put in him. A transformed person, first of all, lives a life of good reputation. The Bible has a lot to say about a reputation. I'll just quote a few from Proverbs. Let love and faithfulness never leave you, said the writer of Proverbs. Then you will win favor and a good name or a good reputation in the sight of God and man. A good reputation is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name or the reputation of the wicked will rot. A good name or reputation is better than fine perfume over in Ecclesiastes. And Jeremiah was interceding for Israel in their final days before God's judgment fell upon Jerusalem. And he said, you are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Boy, that's a heavy thing to think about, isn't it? We are in the midst of this world, Christians. We bear his name. Unfortunately, Israel didn't do such a hot job of representing their God to their generation. Behavior enters the equation here in this point at Ephesians for a very important reason. Because we bear God's name. As Christians, and it's important that other people who are observing us see that and are reminded of God's name when they see us and not reminded of other things. F.F. Bruce uses this word picture as members of a reputable family will have the family's good name in mind as they order their public conduct. So members of the Christian society will have in mind not only the society's reputation in the world, but the character of him who called it into being and the purposes of for which he so called it. These verses and chapters in the second half of Ephesians are about behavior responsibilities and expectations and should I run into difficulty regarding one of those three things Jesus graciously points me back to chapters 1 to 3 with a reminder that he expects nothing of us that we cannot produce and so if we fail to produce what happens we go back to chapters 1 through 3 we begin to restudy and rediscover the transformation that's taken place in us and we get a new filling of God's spirit and we realize, aha, with his power in me, I can live out chapters 4 through 6. These imperatives are sprinkled throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6. Words like be, live, do, make, must, do not, must not. You don't see those kinds of words in the first three chapters, but you sure see them in the second half. An imperative is a binding or compelling rule or duty or requirement. Verse 2 begins, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. Here's what I mean by living a worthy life, said Paul. Be patient, kind, humble, loving. How often does Paul remind us of these very things in all of his epistles? You see those words over and over again. If you read them, you know that this subject of Paul's, of living well together, comes up a lot. It's important to him. Transformed people know how to behave when they are in a group setting. They know about things like courtesy, (laughs) hospitality, kind words, encouragement, listening carefully, not speaking out of turn, taking turns, saying please and thank you, (laughs) respecting the teacher, and patting others on the back when they cry. Did you guys ever watch Romper Room when you were a kid? Captain Kangaroo? Yeah, it's before some of your time. How about Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers? You learned those things, didn't you, on those programs? Over and over and over. Be kind. Be polite. Behavior principles like these become even more important in church because of the stakes involved. Unfortunately, churches still have their share of bullies and brats and children who are incapable of normal, peaceful human interaction. We have those people in the church. And I'm not talking about our kids. It's okay if that person who is misbehaving is a new believer and new to the family of God. The family can take that person in. We can teach that person about behavior. But what if that person isn't new? What if he's still pulling the same tricks and the same foul behavior 20 years after he becomes a member at our church? What if that stuff's still going on? Wow. That's not a church member, that's a deviant. Such people, even though they profess Christianity, are still in desperate need of transformation. I've seen it. And any person who is a member of a church and participates in any activity of a church or leads a group at church and yet they're unable to practice these very things like humility or gentleness or patience or love they are going to bring division to that church. It may not happen right away, but it's going to happen eventually. He or she will cripple the effectiveness of that church and create an atmosphere that's never conducive to outsiders wanting to come in. Why? Because they sense there's something wrong. You know, if there's disunity among us, If we have grown-ups that are acting like kids, they've been church members for 20 years and they're just not living in reality, people are not stupid. They come into our midst and they sense that stuff going on and they don't want any part of it. That's why there's so much at stake. When we think about these last three chapters of Ephesians, it's, it's really important that we see behavior matters. The unity of the Spirit which is to be kept comes about when people become believers in Christ and we are each filled with that same Spirit. I'm filled with it, you're filled with it, 
it's the same spirit that unites us and it makes us one body, one church. And the spirit, he doesn't make robots out of us. We retain our own unique personalities, but he does give us his unity. And it is a unity that speaks of peace among us, even when we have differences, maybe personality differences or gift differences or a different outlook on particular aspects of the Bible. Paul said, bear with each other over in Colossians. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Boy, he talks a lot about peace (laughs) and being unity and get it together, guys, kind of pep talks, you know. The imperatives to the Colossians were the very same as the imperatives to the Ephesians. They were different words, same message. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive. Put on the person of Christ. Let the love of Christ dwell in you richly. Live at peace. Again, these are words used by Paul to indicate an expected response and an expected behavior on the part of the members of these churches. Paul saying, I expect this of you. You can do this. You know why you can do it, and you know how you can do it, so do it. Paul was telling him, you can do this. Live at peace with one another. you got the power. you got the ability. You've been transformed. <laughs> Get with the program. His basis for instructing them to live at peace was the fact that Jesus Christ was present inside of them. He himself is our peace. Ephesians 2.14 Who has made the two one. You remember what the name was of that labor union in Poland that brought the communist government of Poland to its knees in the 80s? Remember what was the name of it? Solidarity. That labor union, organized uh, and energized by Lech Walesa, eventually grew to 10 million members. And through demonstrations and strikes in the shipyards of Gdansk, Poland, they forced that government to take them seriously. Solidarity. From the Latin word solidus, meaning a combination or agreement of all individuals, unity in opinion, purpose, interest, or feeling. The word solid means tending to keep its form rather than to flow or spread out like a liquid or a gas, filled with matter throughout, not hollow, no hollow spots inside. We are talking about behavior and people who have been transformed by Christ and are able to behave in a civil manner toward each other, it is through our unity that we express solidarity. No gaps. No gaps as the church. A common purpose. And through that, we gain real substance and we have great impact wherever we go. They brought down a whole government through their solidarity. Imagine what we could do. In the book, The Fellowship of the Ring and the Lord of the Rings Trilogy, you've read them, you've got this band of misfits, you've got hobbits and a dwarf and an elf, 
and a wizard, and uh, you got a couple of human beings mixed in there. And, you know, more than once, that little group, that fellowship of the ring, they are threatened, aren't they, by division among themselves. But they always kind of manage to stay together through all of their ordeals and their trials, and they finally defeat the dark lord Sauron in the end. And at one point, they're on the verge of turning on each other, and then finally the light bulb comes on and wisdom prevails. They pull back from one another and they decide, nope, we're going to stick together. And the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, said this, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the dark lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. And that can be said of us. When we're not in solidarity, it's the enemy coming in, he divides, he conquers, and he weakens our effect. Keep the unity was Paul's command to the Ephesians. Implied in that was the possibility that they could divide, that they could start fighting among themselves. And had that happened... They would have been weakened and the enemy's influence strengthened. Paul emphasized the number one at this point. Uses the word one several times. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And he said it again over in Corinthians. There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. The number one is very important to Paul. Solidarity, unity, living at peace. These are all things that we are told to do first. It's the first thing mentioned here in this section of Ephesians. Paul could have begun this section with any topic, and he chose this. He mentioned it first when it came to his exposition on Christian behavior. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. If you want to know the foundations for unity, well, there they are. You know, if we want to be together, it's going to take humility. It's going to mean that we're gentle with one another, love one another, being patient with one another. People and churches who learn these lessons first can promote true unity. But true unity can only be reached among transformed people. For them, it's possible. For everybody else, it's not possible. True unity can't be achieved. Unless God has transformed you on the inside. Remember, this is a book about transformation. And the transformed individual and the transformed church, we can live in unity. Outside of God's grace and God's power, it's not possible. There's a lot of artificial unity going on out there, but it ain't the real deal and it's only temporary. And the secret to this supernatural ability within transformed people to live together is implied in verse 6. Above all the other ones listed, one faith, one baptism, etc., one God, one God and Father of all of us. Paul described him as over all, through all, in you all. And in the original Greek, the word you is inserted and implied in there. So the phrase could be written over you all, through you all, in you all. And all of the imperatives given in these verses to the Ephesian believers by Paul are obtainable only by God in us doing these things. It is a sham to say that unity 
can be achieved any other way. It, it, you guys know as well as I do, it takes the grace of God for a church to function together. We're just all needy people. And living together is tough. Working together is tough in a church setting. It's tough. If man is left to his own devices, he will accept unity only on his terms. And that's not real unity. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, they all achieved unity, didn't they? In their political parties, in their governments, among their people. It was at the force of a gun, but they got unity. Not real thing, but they got it. Many Christian groups and even denominations also can achieve a unity like that, believe it or not. In the end, it's just a unity that is based on a mutual agreement among the members of that church or denomination that everybody else that disagrees with them can't be a part of what they're doing. Maybe you've been a part of something like that before, a religious group that if you don't do it the way we do it, then you're not a part of what we're doing. That's pretty sad. And it's no different than a a communist regime. It's no different. It's the same spirit. Because of sin and selfishness and pride and rebellion, man finds it very difficult to achieve the unity that is spoken of here. It's, it, it's like Paul treats it like a precious pearl. And, and the reason he treats it this way is because it's so rare. It's so rare. Unity is going to play out in many different ways as we learn to live and work together, Christian people. It's, it's going to happen for us in many, lots of different ways. It's going to mean that I don't always get my way in church decisions. It's going to mean I may have to work with somebody with whom I don't necessarily get along. It's going to mean that I have to seek common ground with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That I have to seek compromise at times that I have to allow things that aren't important to just pass me by that I have to be teachable and willing to defer to other people who may have a better idea than I do and I'm not talking about your behavior at work or at home at work you're being paid for it so you got to buckle under at home you either learn how to buckle under and learn how to cooperate with your wife or husband or it did, your, your house turns into chaos. But what about the church? What about the church? What about our behavior toward one another here at church? Within this church family, because that's the focus of Paul's exhortation here to the Ephesians. It's a letter to the church. It's not a letter to your family. It could apply there, but it's generally a letter to the church. Guys, you're in this together. The stakes are high. Learn how to behave around one another and so on our to-do list today church there is this imperative from God to be these things that are spoken about here be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace The shift in language between these two halves of Ephesians is dramatic and it's dramatic for a reason. 
It is here in this second half that Christians are called and are expected to make the tough transition from learning to doing. And the first thing we are to do is, lo and behold, live in unity and to be humble with one another. I'll close with this. Erwin McManus wrote this. God does not oppose the weak and the broken and the poor and the hurting or even the sinful, but he does oppose the proud. And so we're called to be humble. We're called to live humble lives in front of one another, patient and kind. I'll leave you with that thought this, this, this evening, church, because it's so important. What does a new human being look like as described by Paul in Ephesians? What does he look like? That's what we asked when we started this message tonight. Well, a new human being in Christ, first of all, looks and acts humble and gentle and patient. And God's Spirit dwelling in that person makes him so. I hope that that's something we can take with us this week because I know how hard it is to be humble, patient, forgiving, and kind. (laughs) It's very difficult at times. But we can do it, can't we? Somebody say amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy through your word and what you teach us there. Thank you for these precious words from Paul. And Lord, now we see in this fourth chapter of Ephesians that he's getting down to business with us. He's, he's detailed to us, Lord, who we are in you and the wonderful grace we have received from you. And now we discover we have responsibilities. Now we see the outworking of your grace in us. And uh, Lord, we confess tonight that quite often we don't measure up. And Lord, we're sorry about that. And we ask forgiveness and we ask, Lord God, would you please help us to live out what you have put into us. Teach us. Return us to the basics. Help us to be kind, humble, gentle people patient with one another as we work together in the church, uh, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Help us to do that, to live that out in our attitudes and our behavior each day, each week. Lord, so that we can show the world our solidarity, that they will sense our solidarity when they come among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.